cord. Testing, testing. Testing, testing. Testing, testing. Great. Awesome. That's quite full. Thank you very much. Hey, can I um, make you a coffee? No, it's okay. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Sure? Oh, yeah? All right, cool. All right, so basically, if you just put these earphones on, they're just really good to kind of block out the sound, and it just means that when I talk to you or when you talk to me, there's no really external sound. We're just kind of speaking straight into each other. Um, and uh, these are directional mics, so as long as, as, long as you're speaking in the direction of record, um, I generally... For just through through pattern of, of speaking into mics, I try and speak directly into it. But I think I've only just seen that in podcasts where I've seen Joe Rogan go like speaking to the mic, but you don't need to with this one. Um, and uh, and like, so can you hear me? Really well. Oh, that's awesome. Sounds Great. like you got me as well. This yeah, is cool. yeah, this is cool, <laughs> man. Radio. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, so we can like I'll I'm recording, but I'll clip it to start whenever we want to start. And if yep. there's anything you say that you want to get, get rid of, yep. um, that's I'm easy to. Don't, yeah? don't, don't fuss over me. <laughs> Whatever makes your life easy as well. Oh, man, yeah, that, I, um, that's okay. Editing editing podcasts these days, there's like a there's like a tower of people on, on these websites that will edit this stuff. Oh, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, this quality. I'd love to live my life. Like this. <laughs> <laughs> so cool. Thank you, mate. Thank you. Thank you for uh, thank you for accepting to do this. There's there's so many people I'd really love to do this, and I think especially with some of the guys I meet at BNI, they are really passionate about what they do. Yes. And um, and it's oh, I do wonder if everybody is passionate about what they do, and they just need a, a nice little environment to come and share a little bit about it. But for me, because um, my job is to protect people. Um, I'd like to connect to the core of what what they do and why they do it, and it just it, I feel like it binds me more to the result and the outcome I need to derive for them. And um, and the other thing is, and, and this happened with Shane Rosario, our, our photographer. He's mate, have you met? Oh, obviously you've you've known him a lot longer, right? Because I've, I've just joined. But what an interesting guy! Yeah, he's quite a, a fascinating dude. Uh, what are the things that uh, strike out for you? He's, um, he has a separate business which is there to promote passionate photographers to explore each other's passion so that they can learn how to do what they do better. Mm-hmm. We are observers, you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, we are observers. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and, and even though it's not his core, it's definitely where his heart is, mm. um, going on like travel expeditions and learning from other photographers how to take good shots and then them, them taking those skills forward into their photography careers. And so I find that really, really interesting. There's so much you learn from people by doing stuff like that. Having one-to-ones when it's just not just about business, but their side businesses, their side hustles, their yeah. you know their hobbies and passions. Yeah, and uh, I don't know, he's had a pretty rough trot the last twelve months. With yeah, his family totally. and all the rest of it. So my heart goes out to him. Yeah, but, you know he's putting on a brave face, and that's what yeah. you do. Yeah, but he's doing it really well. Mm. There's a lot of people that put on a brave face, you know. Mm-hmm. Once you get to the core, um, there's always there's always uh, a lot going on. There's always a nice yellow behind people. I yeah, think. There's yeah. There's always something vulnerable 
yeah. to human beings, and if you're not, you're not human. <laughs> Pretty much. Or you're a psycho. <laughs> yeah, or the mask is just so thick that you're not, you know, you're not allowing yourself to be vulnerable enough to let it shine through. Yeah, true. Um, why did you decide to become a property manager? Yes, straight into it. <laughs> well, as well. Well, firstly, I just want to say thank you for having me in your environment. This is a really cool place to be. I feel so safe. There's a fire station around the corner. There's a cop shop. There's a cop shop around the corner. Yeah. And I'm in a lawyer's building. Yeah. Uh, so, firstly, I feel safe. Just Great so you know, and you're the man for insurance. But basically... Security is important. <laughs> <laughs> Um, basically, being a property manager is a really interesting role. Um, I do come from a sales background, um, and sales is fun. It's exciting. But uh, the relationships are more transactional, I find. Um, you know, you, you get a great listing, you do a good job for four to eight weeks thereabouts, the property settles. And then you move on to the next listing and, uh, yeah, it's very much uh, all about commission and the money and all that sort of stuff. So property management really appealed to me because it's long-term relationships and you can really see the achievements and the benefits of, of doing the right thing by the client over a long period of time, years. Uh, I've been in business for seven years, real estate for 11 years, and some of my clients are 10 or 11 years with that journey with me. So... Um, seeing their properties, you know, increasing rent, mm. doing the renovations, uh, then buying second and third and fourth properties. It's really interesting and, and fascinating for me to be part of that journey. Absolutely. That, that, and a property journey is a long journey. It, it should uh, be. It's not, yeah, well, it should be, right? It's well, not flipping. It's not rewarding. Is it, is it, for those people that flip, is it just as rewarding? I don't deal with many flippers. Right. Because most of my... Management's a six to twelve month at least, at the very least. Uh-huh. So flippers are generally just getting in, getting the job done, getting out. Okay. So not really. So there's not really any property management aspect to that. No, I guess the aspect would be providing some advice on what potential tenants would love in terms of, you know, they love a bath in the in the bathroom because they've got young families or whatever the demographic in the location is, sure. I'd provide advice there. Sure. Uh, but essentially uh, they're looking to maximise their sale price to uh, to yeah. buyers. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, before you go on, I know you're gonna say something. Yeah. But I'm gonna reverse it back to you. Yeah. Because this is a two way process. Yeah. <laughs> but why did you get into insurance? Oh man, I you know, I really feel like my role in life is to protect people. It's crazy, actually, how how tuned in I am to to, to feeling the need and desire to protect people. Um, I uh, I'm a, I think I'm I'm a really strong fighter. Like I I, I I fight to get the best result possible with with everything I do. And um, and when I tie it into what people love with what they do in their occupations and, and, and their sense of security. You know, I, I, I'm really sensitive to people's sense of security and sense to feel protected and have their, have their situation reinstated after a catastrophic loss. I mean, when, if you spent a day in the office here, um, our claims team is in the main, the main area with our sales team because it keeps it real. 
um, when you see the fights and the battles they're having. Um, yesterday we had a situation where uh, someone was in a strata block and um, the roof had been damaged so often that it became a maintenance issue, not an insurance claim issue, because once it becomes maintenance, it's not sudden and unforeseen. It becomes a gradual thing, and yeah. insurance policies aren't there for that. Yeah. And so the first thing there is, the key takeaway is the sudden and unforeseen. That's what we're really there to help people through. But in this situation, the, their internal ceilings got really soaked from some storm damage, um, Everything internally, effectively, with regards to the walls, is strata property. Everything on the inside of the walls is 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 the individual's property. Yes. Is contents. Um, so this situation was interesting because there was a massive amount of mold building up in the house. We've got a one-year-old, and um, she's pregnant with her, her next child. Um, there's an au pair, um, and obviously the mum and the father. And um, we just so we, so we pushed the strata manager to. Um, get get some action happening because we couldn't leave this house in this situation. The ceilings internally were going black from mould. Yes. Yeah. And um, technically it's a building issue and it's not an insurance claim claimable event because it's a long-standing maintenance issue. So they were kind of stuck in the middle. Um, but my team got involved, really got the strata manager to take some action. We really kind of, it's, it's amazing how much how much force and and, and um, st strategy you need to put onto a strata manager to really gear them to take the next step and get something happening, especially when it's not an insurance claim and the insurer isn't paying. Someone's got to pay for it. But there's process that has to be taken. And what do you do when there's this long process and this political process that needs to happen and you've got this situation? Well, we immediately got a, a mold specialist out there. They prepared for us a report. The report mentioned damage to contents. Um, we had a great policy in place for these guys. It was an excellent, it's a masterpiece policy through Chubb, um, which defines paint as contents. Yes, excellent. Which means I could trigger the policy, which means I could trigger the alternate accommodation expenses, which means we could put them into a, some accommodation. And now we've been able to trigger a mold remediation clause in the policy for all the mold to be remediated. Obviously, that's going to put pressure on the strata to actually keep up with repairing the external um, roof because we're going to say, hey, we're ready to fix. What are you guys doing? It's going to add this additional amount of pressure. Um, and, you know, they're so much better. She's so much, she feels so much safer in that situation, especially knowing that that facility is available to her. And that's all going on whilst we're handling really large renewals and telling people what things need to be adjusted with their policies so that they can be more protected. Yes. Um, and it's just a nice, like I leave at the end of the day feeling good. That's awesome. It that's is awesome. A, a great feeling. Yeah. Can yeah. I just go back to the strata manager element? Because yeah. in my experience being a property manager, I'm quite used to strata managers mm. uh, taking their time and a lot of the time it's not their own fault. They're just inundated with work, with requests, with demands and owners are not getting back to them as well. So what are some of the tactics, so to speak, to get them to act quickly and make your situation a priority as opposed to the many other things they've got on their things to do? Mm. It's, it's, it's generally one really good one and it's making people aware that as as a professional 
somewhere along the lines in carrying out their profession, they have a duty of care. And a duty of care can't really be something you exit at any point in time. So, for example, if I've made 10 complaints about the the roof and nothing's happened, well, there's a point at which a reasonable person would say that's negligence. Yes. And, um, and negligence against the professional, there is definitely insurance for. And there's also office bearers' liability under a strata policy. <clears throat> and office bearers' liability is there to protect claims against office bearers for mismanagement of their position on the strata. So there are many other aspects to people's roles and, and the roles that they all interplay in a scenario. And it's about looking at that scenario and trying to hit those buttons yeah, sure. to get them to take some serious action. The second one is making them very aware that from a certain point, we will consider that no action taken is unreasonable and there will be costs and someone will have to pay that bill. So sure. in, this, in this particular scenario, letting them know that it's unreasonable to allow a, a mother and a child to be living in a, in a, in a home with a build-up of mould due to an external building maintenance issue is, is, is going to start costing somebody a lot of money. Yeah. And, um, and that, that's generally the, the, the points of action. Great. And then it's just about, and, I mean, the, next, I mean the, the unique scenario with that scenario is because we identified those two points and we gave them ample time. And during that time, we carried out reports and we presented them with a report which was dependable that could be used. <clears throat> Fantastic. Then uh, the third one was we got the client's own insurer to actually accept a claim, which means it's not us bringing a claim against you, it's going to be an insurer. Mm-hmm. And that's what they do. Okay. They pay claims and they recover. And they'll come, come for you. And they'll come for you. Okay. <laughs> well, that's uh, enough pressure. In mind, so <laughs> Pretty much. Up. And they've completely changed their tune on this claim. Okay. Notices have been sent out. Special levy um, discussions have started to be had. Yeah. People have been apparently sitting on this roof maintenance cost levy for the last three and a half years. Jeez. Um, and now it's worse. So, you know, I think the right action needs to be taken at some point. And I think as a country we need to be really sensitive to water damage. Um, because um, our temperatures are going to be more extreme on either end. Yes. And, um, and, and, and our building code hasn't really been adjusted for a long time in respect of how our buildings drain water. Yeah. Mould mold is a serious issue yeah, in absolutely. this country. Absolutely. Um, there's very few policies that cover mould. Um, and some of the largest claims I've been a part of have been large water damage claims in strata buildings where buildings have been flooded from the top floor from hydrants that have been turned off to, to you know maliciously and the biggest claim was 28 levels of a, of a strata building wow. we, we had to cut up cut up the walls of each strata building about a meter and cut up cut away all the jib rock dry the concrete and resurface and relay an entire 28 story building that would be 288 lots well let me tell you where it doesn't get cheap when there's mold where you have tenants who this commercial or resi? Resi. Well, you have tenants who have decided that contents insurance was too expensive to take out. And because contents insurance was too expensive to take out, they, they couldn't cover their internal carpet damage that was damaged from the water. So rather than let us in to dry the concrete, because our intention was to dry the concrete, we, unfortunately we can't do anything about the carpet because it's theirs. 
but what do you do when the carpet prevents you from drying the concrete? Yes. Well, we got, thankfully again, a really great insurer painted the scenario that their costs are going to be more exorbitant if they don't remove the carpet for the tenant, but then the tenants would be left with no carpet at the end. Yes. And had they had contents insurance, contents would have covered the carpet. Or for some of those tenants that had floorboards instead of carpets, yes, um, their their false flooring is considered their contents, but no no insurance. So then you're left with floors that are warping, but you're left with this stench of water wetness underneath that needs to be dried. Absolutely. Now imagine you had a 28 story building, um, you know, somewhere like quite a lot of tenant there's a lot of people in that, those buildings and once you get mold and mold starts to carry through to each level you might have to evacuate everybody and completely dry out the place that is huge yeah and provide accommodation and provide accommodation yeah okay. tenants don't get accommodation owners living in the strata apartment do but if you're a tenant you're not entitled to the strata policies benefits you've got to have your own policies yes and so people were jammed in this corner and they wouldn't let us in. And whilst we were drying the rest of the place, there was like an apartment on each level that still wouldn't let us in that was had mould building up. And it, it was just as effectively, if that apartment didn't let us dry that apartment, but we had dried everything else, it was the same as the whole floor being mould oh, damaged. Right. So it's just permeating, still permeating. the building. So it's interesting. I don't know if we as a country have learnt to live in these high-rise development where there's so many people living on top of each other um, and we definitely don't have the rules to govern how risk is managed in these large communities. Well, it's certainly a piece of information where we have to learn, learn fast because with the denser we're getting, the more people are going to be living in high-rise and yeah. start a building. So, yeah. Uh, I, th- I, think, I, think, I think a property manager's role is really instrumental, though, um, in in that how do you how do you see your role in that sort of scenario yeah great question we are representing the lot owner of course and a property manager let's say example a building of 100 there's depending on the mix-up of the building there might be 50 percent tenants or investors and 50 percent owner occupiers and that 50 percent that's rented out you might have 10 or 15 or 50 different agents involved. So that, for a start, provides a difficult scenario yeah. because you've got all these different stakeholders, yeah. all these different points of contact. Yeah. So we've got to communicate, as the industry, uh, efficient information with the strata manager. Um, but also it comes down to the individual property manager when communicating with the tenant. You know, you've got to set up your own contents insurance. These are the ramifications if you don't. Um, and we give tenants a huge amount of information, which unfortunately goes over the head sometimes because they want the keys, they want to move in, they want to start living. There's like a lot of information in the lease, there's special conditions, there's clauses, uh, there's strata bylaws, which I can tell you uh, we're obligated to give to the tenants. But I'd say about one to five percent would actually glance at them. Um, so there's a huge amount of information, communication, and uh, documentation that we're providing tenants. And in amongst all that, the context of the variety of stakeholders, unfortunately, it just gets lost in the system. 
So my answer is the role of a property manager is to 100% look after their client, number one, but also when they sign up a tenant, that's the best opportunity to say, these are our expectations of an agency to communicate with, well with us. Uh, we can't highlight how important it is to get your own contents insurance. The owner, in nine times out of 10 cases, has landlord insurance. The building has building insurance. So it's up to you, the owner's on you to look after yourself. So I guess that's a little summary on how we start the relationship with the tenant. To battle with information, um, but also uh, be clear about what our expectations are as well. Um, you know, with I mean, I find a lot of my English mates that move over here they um, they always register their cars, right? But they always and they pay their green slip, which yes. attaches to their rego. Yes, and they think that's my, my car insured. I mean, uh, I I think they. Don't they don't believe that their own property is insured, but they believe that on the back of that green slip, if they hit another car, I always get. It's mainly from um, people that are English. They always go, "I thought I paid my green slip, so therefore the other cars and the other property is covered." Yes. Whereas green slip only cover covers injury, doesn't cover third party property. Yes. Um, but there's a compulsory aspect to um, being able to drive a car and have a minimum injury policy. Yes. Um, and I'm not a big fan of compulsory insurance, um, but can obviously you can see from that scenario that there's an element there that if that tenant doesn't get the minimum, then not even the strata building can, can bring a claim against that tenant for not letting them in. That's right. Yeah. And it affects everybody in that in that building. Um, what do you think the strata manager's role in that in this picture is? You've given me your, your views in the fact that you represent the owner and you can inform the tenant, but where do you think a strata manager comes in in that mix? Well, they've got no real direct relationship with the tenants. That's the property manager's role. So mm. essentially... So you're closer? Yeah, we're much closer. Um, I know from experience that strata managers do not want to speak to tenants. Mm -hmm. They are very clear about that. And that's just another stakeholder that confuses their mm -hmm. workload. Yeah. So, yeah, whenever I've tried to do that, uh, it has been pushed back really hard. So there's no direct relationship with tenants and strata managers, unless it's tenants and the strata managers trade to, you know, rectify situations and whatnot. So that's, a, that's another element that makes it difficult. For, um, and, managers. and the building manager, what's what's their involvement with the tenant? Yeah, they're they're more hands on, I guess. They're generally present in the building, uh, either having an office on site or visiting every day. Uh, so they're more hands on, like I said. But essentially, they're chosen by the strata managing agents in most cases, or the or the strata committee. Mm. So they're at the direction of the strata managers. They're just there to facilitate. Uh, access with trades and report on uh, repairs and maintenance as well in the common property areas. So there's really no one that represents the tenant other than the property you manager facilitating with them, right? But really, we're 100% the owner. The owner. Mm. However, we do obviously care and uh, you know, really want our tenants to be happy because a long term tenant is a, is a great scenario for us and the yeah. owners. But you're right, it's, it's a difficult situation mm -hmm. where the tenant doesn't have that insurance 
or doesn't have anyone really on their side. Yeah, yeah, and then so, and then you, and then you have to deal with cultures and how certain cultures um, live in and live in high rise. Yes, um, you're dealing with different demographic levels and different um, aspects of their beliefs in insurance, and then it's just a it's just a myriad of um, challenges there. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Wow. It's wow. complex, doesn't it, when you get, when you get into it quite deep like this? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, and when you throw in a big claim like that and then you see that, um, yeah, it can all become quite quite challenging. Mm. Mm. Well, I can tell you, I mean, our role or, or the role that I see myself play in that, in that role is, is pretty instrumental. I think that if an insurance broker is getting involved in strata like we do, it's really important that the broker tries to, demonstrate the importance of protection for both the owners and for the tenants. Yes. And we've, we've in the past developed a few schemes that make it really accessible for people to, to purchase insurance and setting up signposts when buildings are just brand new and created so that when people are moving in, they're, they're seeing the, the, um, the, the opportunity to actually get some protection and really <coughs> at that opportunity know where the lines stop and start because it's often that the tenant believes that the owners and the buildings insure everything. Yep. It's, it's always the case. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think that we play a very, very vital role in that in that overall situation. I think um, little client and tenant packs um, off the back of your packs. I think, I think various touch points where tenants can get to see and get the opportunity to purchase insurance um, are key. Um, but we use property managers in that really large claim to get tenant details so that we could communicate directly with tenants. So I, I definitely think our an insurance broker's role with the various property managers is there's something there. We had a lot of meetings with the we, we called meetings for property owners. Yes. And we had large meetings of up to sixty different property owners for one building and to communicate to property owners the importance of their the tenants allowing us in and what's covered and what's not covered. Great uh Initiative, can I mm. jump on that and say, yeah. how, how does an insurance broker and a property manager slash real estate agent work better together in these scenarios? Yeah, I think um, I, I think I think I think tools. I think we need to give out tools that are easy for you to communicate with your tenants and owners. Um, one of the big situations that um, triggered that really large event was the fact that. There was an owner who was holiday letting their tenancy in a large high-rise building. The individual got confused as to which tower they were actually meant to be in because they came back from a party and they all, all the towers looked the same. So they were trying to get up the lift and their tag wouldn't work. And, and they, were, they weren't in the state of mind to realise that they were trying to go up the wrong tower and the yeah. wrong lift. So they decided to follow somebody up to the top floor to let off a fire hydrant on the top floor. Oh God! After eight or nine hours of waiting down downstairs in the lobby, that was so obviously malicious. Uh, yeah, it was damage malicious, malicious damage. Uh, property. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, they had six, uh, I don't know, something like six um, interactions with the security guard. It still didn't prevent you know the few million dollars that it cost and inconvenience that it cost everybody. Wow. So you kind of go, what, what can we do? There's a lot we can do. 
well, I'll be uh, vocal <laughs> and saying ban Airbnb. Yeah, <laughs> but right. no, that's that's a that's a not a statement. That's, that's valid. Really, it's off the cuff. Yeah, because what it, what it, what that does, and and it's almost like. The taxi is trying to ban Uber, which I saw. A, I saw a documentary actually about. Um, on, was it on sixty Minutes recently? Yeah, they were talking about how Uber forced their way in and basically said, "Come and stop us." But when initiatives like that take over, um, and people's desire for what that new initiative gives them, which is freedom of earning money with your property, which is technically yes. being unused. Um, we've seen in several scenarios that legislation can't stop that. Yes. It's interesting. Mm. So then if legislation can't stop that, things need to emerge around that to control it and manage it and and manage the risk associated with it. Yeah. Can I ask a question? With strata buildings, um, the premiums go up or down or fluctuate depending if the building permits short-term lettings. There is, a, there is an underwriting question at every renewal, um, which I think the question is, is, is any more than 10% of your property used for short-term lighting? Okay. And it's, it's an interesting question because it begs, begs to know how well a strata owner's court can measure that number and know whether they're truly ticking the right number. And some of the questions are what percentage of your property is short-term lighting? I mean, do you walk outside the property and have a look at how many padlocks are chained to bikes that are sitting there with keys in them? <laughs> yeah, you see that a lot, darling, you're so good. Oh, it's amazing. I mean, when I, because um, we, we bring our team down from Manila and we always book them into an Airbnb for a long-term period and once you get the instructions, it's like, where's Wally? Outside <laughs> the front, right? And you go into all these padlocks. And the best one was these old bikes that were chained to a post on Botany Road. And on the bikes, they were covered with padlocks. Right? And we walked up and down past these bikes. And then you turn around and you just go, wow. More common than you think. More common than you think. Mm. And then you see it everywhere. Mm. So I've seen some building managers basically um, break, have these big wrenches where they basically break the padlocks, leave them in the building manager's office so that when someone comes, they can get the details of the, of the, of the, of the strata plan. Yeah a lot what the right thing to do though is to then enforce the owner of that strata of that lot to take out a specific short-term letting policy yep which indemnifies for liability arising from short-term income producing lets sure and um and that would protect the owner's corp um for negligence and then you know the other thing is is what processes are you as a strata bringing into place for lockouts, Um, loitering, number of persons in apartments, emergency evacuation systems. Swipe and key access. Yes. Number of apartments, number of keys are provided. It raises the question around security and noise and a whole series of other things. Mm -hmm. Um, Things which I don't think, I think we're still trying to put our head in the sand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I manage a property in Hyde Park Towers, which is in Elizabeth Street. It's a beautiful building. Is that the new one? No, it's kind of almost on the corner of Elizabeth and... uh, Liverpool? Liverpool. Yeah. Uh, Oh, yeah. I know the one. Next to 175 Liverpool Street, the old American Express building. Um, I believe so. That's a beautiful building. 
Oh, recently it's renovated. That beautiful. Oh, really? <laughs> is it re- not maybe, we, maybe we're thinking of the wrong. Uh, it's it, not it, the Connaught? No, no, around the corner from that. Uh-huh. Elizabeth Street. Okay. But either way. Um, oh, I know the one. Yeah. With that building in particular, they only permit a swipe card for the number of bedrooms in the building, in the mm-hmm. apartment. So if it's a one bedroom unit, no, one swipe. Um, if it's a couple, sense. you're allowed, if there's two people, sorry, you're allowed two swipes. Even the managing agent is not allowed to swipe. So that's highly unusual because mm. every property I've got, except for that building, uh, we don't have a managing agent swipe. Mm. So we have to go through the concierge and there's a building manager also on site to permit access. So it's okay, because we've always got access. But uh, that's, I thought that was a quite clever way yeah, to avoid the short-term problems. Definitely. And they make it very clear in all the common, common property areas with notice boards and uh, in the bylaws and when the concierge and building manager speak to us, it's really, really clear. And you can tell, like the building lobby is in great nick, the common property areas are in great nick. It's a 1970s building, I think, but it looks really good for that age of building. So it's expensive, though, to have building management on site. It's expensive to have concierge and security. So those are the factors that make the levies go up. Yep. And but insurance goes down. So it's a bit of a balance, isn't it? It really does. You know, um, in the history of, of um, one of our insurers who, who actively participate in insuring or, you know, the majority of high-rise in, in the Gold Coast and Surfers Paradise, um, they have never had an event such as the one that we had. Um, but I think fundamentally the reason is because is most of them have a concierge. And um, if you were to review the cost of concierge, over the life of that policy over the last five years and take a look at the cost of having a concierge versus the cost of claims and the cost of increasing premiums and the cost of excesses. And and you consider all the other things that having a concierge could have actually helped and prevented. You kind of wonder whether having a concierge is actually really that expensive. That's such a great point. I actually, if you'll be surprised to notice, there used to be a concierge uh, Did you? Yeah, several different buildings. One on the Gold Coast, actually, uh, but also one at uh, in Piedmont. Uh, it's just left me. It was about ten years ago. Oh right! But I was there doing graveyard shift from six really? to six a.m. And the things I saw. <laughs> really? Yeah. I could write a book. I bet. I bet. <laughs> but it was so. Your point is so valid that you know I was able to avoid. Uh, certain risks because you know having a human being having access to 20 different camera angles mm. in lifts and pool areas and common property areas is really beneficial mm. to mitigate against certain behaviors mm. escalating yep and uh, you know that was huge beneficial huge I'm sure all the residents that actually lived in the building, like the occupiers, and of course the tenants, they appreciate the service, but also the, the comfort and security which you talk yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, Look, it's interesting. I can't tell you how much cheaper prevention is than than paying claims. Yeah. So if, if if you're listening, you're seeing me nod my head vigorously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty much. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I um. Uh, and I look at and I look at this all the time, and I look at 
And when I look at when I prepare submissions for insurers, I prepare an average loss ratio, I prepare an average frequency ratio, and I take a look at certain risk measures that we implement and how they affect the severity and frequency of losses. And then I have a look at the, the potential savings that can be, be, be driven by changing those little, little they're like little keys on the turntable. Yes. And, um, and you can half premiums by modifying those keys. Wow. You can really do, like, because once you, once you reduce the frequency, um, or one way to manage frequency is to adjust the excess. You'd be yes. surprised how quickly the frequency changes on, on a policy. But then, but then they still incur losses, so you have to do things to make sure you prevent those losses because yes. things that go unmanaged become worse. Yeah. Um, which, is, which, is, you know, which is part of, part of the passion why I love what we do. Um, I want to ask you now to, to, to put on the same cap but think about commercial. Sure. Excellent. Commercial high-rise. Um, because I think commercial is another, 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 another matter, another situation of um, activities and you've got occupations and you've got different tenancies trading different types of businesses. Um, and in most commercial strata properties, the costs of risk and the cost of insurance are generally apportioned by the number of lots. Yes. Um, that's the most common. I mean, no one says, well, I've got to price that lot specifically uh, because a tenant might move in there that exposes us more than, you know, the office next door. Yes. Like, let's say you had a mechanic and a graphic designer next door. I can assure you when my insurers go out to look at that, they'll price the whole scheme on the basis of the most hazardous tenant. Yes. Which is why a lot of the times you have to declare the number of tenancies um, and what those tenants do. So That's the strata manager's role? No, that's the insurance broker's okay. role. Yeah, yeah listing, listing and getting tenancy details and then, and then it, it always goes further in, in, in commercial strata because in residential, when you say I've got 288 lots, with 99% certainty you know what those lots are being used for. Yes. But when you've got that in commercial, um, you, the, 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 the interplay between them all changes quite significantly. Absolutely. Um, and then the construction changes, whether it's sprinkled or not, um, how well the housekeeping is looked after, all those sorts of things. Yes. You've obviously experienced that. Do you, do you, what's your experience with commercial strata? It's probably not as significant as residential, to be perfectly honest. But I've been on the strata committee for the, my own building, which I'm a lot of in, in the city. That's a building right in the heart of the city. It's a heritage listed building. It's 160 lots, thereabouts, 11 levels. And that is a perfect scenario, example, where it is an absolute myriad of different tenancies. Uh, the mix is very varied with a lot of jewellers in the building, a lot of white collar professionals, cafes downstairs in the retail spaces, and there's actually a brothel also in the basement. Cool. So that changes uh, the, the risk considerably. <laughs> that does. So That does. <laughs> yeah, I'd be very interested to, to understand from your perspective how it changes it and why it changes it. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is this is um this is a perfect example, right? Cool. You've got 160 lots. Yeah, yeah. About 11 levels. Yes. 
you're in the CBD, which is interesting because it means you have a higher terrorism levy okay. to pay on that property because... Did you um, know that existed? Yeah, because, well, yeah. You didn't know that existed? No, yeah, I right. So terror levy exists on three levels. It exists on CBD is a rate. Then you've got um, suburban, which is another rate, and then you've got regional, which is another rate. Wow. That and is... Interesting. Yeah, and what that and what terror levy is is a levy that we all must pay to contribute into a pool called the terror levy pool, and when it is declared by the government that we have had a terror terrorism event, yes, then insurance is then um, no longer yeah at play because all all insurance policies exclude terrorism events. Wow. And then the terror pool kicks in. So then we all go to claim a maximum amount per lot from a terror pool. Okay, sure. So it's where this, where another self, it's another form of self, it's a self-insurance scheme regarding specific events which you can't get insurance for. Okay. And um, so I believe in the city, CBD, the terror levy is somewhere between, I think, 11%. So, you know, you have certain levies that play with, with premiums. Normally the premium you pay to the insurer is about 50%. Mm-hmm. Of the of the total premium you pay, the other premiums go to looking after the fire brigades to put out fires. So the fire service levy, yes, and then you've got the terror levy. The FSL the fire service levy is about twenty, somewhere between twenty, about twenty percent. Okay. Um, terror levy eleven percent, GST ten percent, and stamp duty nine percent. Okay. So That's there's a lot of percentage points on the end of that. Um, the reason it's higher in the CBD is because generally a terrorism event could affect multiple buildings. Yeah, absolutely. And they're sandwiched all together. Um, and so the problem there is, is if you've if one building, um, you can't you can't deny one building next to another if there's a terror event. It just has to all get remediated. So it's a it's a it's it's a it's it's a form of uh, insurance levy that doesn't select. It's an all in type of policy. Sure. Whereas if you know you have two homes next to each other. Um, you know, this is one of the reasons why fire service levy is so contentious because if you're in a bushfire zone and you've got a whole bunch of houses in a street burning, you don't go up to them and ask ask them which one's insured. Mm-hmm. You've got to put them all out. But it's only the people that have actually insured their homes that contributed to the fire service levy, but the other people who don't have insurance have benefited from oh, the fire. That's interesting. It is interesting. Yeah. Yeah, fraught with danger. It is. And um, especially when you look at commercial buildings next to one another and people sometimes can't afford to insure. And, and generally the reasons for that is because there hasn't been any proactive risk management around various issues. And then you go to suburban, less high-rise, more spread out. Yes. Terror levy drops almost half of that. And yes. then you go regional and it drops to significantly lower, less yeah. than half of that. Yeah, makes sense. The next thing is, is you know... Now, considering we're now going to talk about the the, the tenant, the risk profile of tenants mm-hmm. and how an insurer is going to price that risk. Yes, you're in an office building, Daniel, up above on a high level, I imagine. Level six. Level six. Yep. Um, and you've got effectively from from the insurer's perspective, you've got a fire burning in the basement <laughs> because. You've got cafes, you've got a bit of cooking going on. Yes. You've got 
chances. You've got jewelers, so very, very expensive valuables. Yes. Um, they can really drive malicious behaviour for theft and planned theft events. Yes. Normally theft events that require blowing things up to get access to to various items. Or violent or aggressive behaviour. Violent or aggressive behaviour. Mm. I mean, I've been involved in a lot of jewellery claims. Okay. Um, we looked after we looked after a lot of jewellers in Fairfield okay. where there's a strip of jewellers. Mm. When those guys get broken into, it's generally planned. It's generally through the roof, generally through a false ceiling. They come down. They have to blow things apart to get access to things. Um, so the damage is extensive. And yeah. the, normally damage that occurs to common property which you're all paying a premium for. Sure. Now, you're just in your nice little office upstairs, um, but you're paying for the, for the, for the uh, exposures brought to you by the people that choose to move in and out Correct. of the downstairs lots. Correct. This is what I'm finding, yeah. <laughs> and then you've got, you've got a brothel. Now, most insurers in Australia, and it changes, it's like a, it's like a pendulum swing, they have to reinsure. We're a country which is really driven by our ability to actually de-risk our own insurance industry by taking out insurance offshore. So if you're a, um, so to put it, put it this way, if you're like a large national insurer that does home insurance, yes. um, what you would do is because you've got such a large exposure to bushfires and flood events, um, you would offer the cover and then you would reinsure yourself and you would go to the overseas market and you would say, I have 10,000 homes in yes. a flood zone. Yes. The risk is too exorbitant for us to, to carry. If, the, if there was a flood, we, would, we wouldn't be able to afford to pay out 10,000 homes in a flood event. Yes. We'd like to insure it. And then a reinsurer overseas would say, okay, I'll pick up 50% of your losses and I'll pay. And then, the, and then the local insurer would pay a premium for that. Okay. Or they might, and most of the reinsurers pick up 80% of the loss in that scenario. So then, so then if you're an NRMA, I'd collect my premium off you as a homeowner. Yes. And then I would lose the margin in that because I reinsured it. But then yeah. I have a, a slightly better risk scenario. And if a major loss occurs, I'm not going to go broke, which means I can afford to pay out everybody. Yeah. Okay. Fine. This happens on a regular basis. This happens on a regular basis with many different risks. Sure. One of the reasons why premiums have really hiked in Australia is because the reinsurance market reinsures worldwide catastrophic events. So if you take a look at the number of worldwide catastrophic events that have occurred, oil spills, massive earthquakes, massive bushfires, massive floods, Hurricane Katrina, the list goes on, these all impact the reinsurance market in London where most people buy the insurance. So now when we go to buy the same insurance for flood cover, all of a sudden the rates have gone up, which means we've got to pass on that rate to the purchaser of the insurance policy. Wow. So events far, far from our shores Absolutely. are affecting us locally. Absolutely. Had no idea. Yeah, we are a connected world now. Yeah. Everything that goes on in the world is connected. And mm -hmm. we are more than ever, particularly when it comes to insurance, are starting to feel what this costs because People are sometimes having to deal with really rising insurance costs and they're surprised. It's not uncommon if, unless you're a fantastic risk that hasn't had any claims, um, that your premiums would still go up on an average of 10% over the next four to five years. Wow. 10% per annum? 10% per annum. 
Huh. If not more, that's the best risk. Ten percent per annum is a is a, is a natural increase. Huh. Thank you for uh, for warning me. Yeah. So you want to be if you if you know that that's that's happening. And one of the reasons why people would come to someone like me yes. is because they want to pre-plan how to really reduce their risk by at least ten percent each year. Yes. So that you're ten percent more attractive to the insurer, so that they would have to drop their rates, so that you were still at least paying the same, and yeah. you had a better risk. Okay. Thanks for that. So when it comes to brothels, you got to think about how many reinsurance markets can accept that occupation class in a property. And it's the sort of thing where you go from, it's about one out of 10. So think about the ability for me to go out and, and negotiate competition on a risk. Yeah, it's minimized considerably. Considerably. So you, the, this is an interesting building. I mean, when I say you've got a fire in the building, um, you've got a, a general, like really a fire in the building because now if, a, if, a, if an insurer is pricing the highest hazard tenant, immediately in this scenario, you're walking out, you're, you're knocking nine out of ten off the list, which means you've only got one to two offers and how they perceive that risk is the next thing you've got to manage. Yes. All right, thanks for that. I, I'm going to go on, but I, thought, I, saw, I saw you had a question that you might. No, 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 no. I'm just uh, trying to take it all in. Yeah, it's uh, it's an education process here around me this morning. <laughs> else, so I guess that's why we're doing this. Yeah, to educate one another. Yeah. Um, so, I think it's really important in these scenarios to to relook at how we exist in communities. Um, and to take a look at maybe how, how far behind the, the legislation and rules are around governing these sort of situations. Um, and I think it's just, you know, um, PTW Law Next Door, one of the lawyers, uh, one of three lawyers that drafted the Strata Management Act, um, which, is, which, is, which is interesting when I realised that. So Ross Zarnas, or Zarnas is actually one of, the, one of the authors of the Strata Management Act. So, um, and so I go next door into the boardroom and I can read the, the original manuscripts it's pretty awesome man. it's pretty awesome but so you go where is the advice occurring in the process of establishing bylaws that go into the determination of risk and the rules around how a building will be managed mm. and it's really at that level that you're striking at the grassroots you know you want to you want to be really considering the sort of scenario where if there is an occupant, a tenant, which considerably modifies the risk for all other parties, then there must be a way to apportion risk towards that party that goes to affecting all the other parties. Yes, totally agree. Now, there are some, some uh, really larger community issues with that that go, well, what will these tenants do what will we do by doing this to these tenants? Will we will we be creating an area in Sydney where all the bubbles go? And what will that look like? That could be quite a dangerous mm. scenario. So we've got a social responsibility mm. there to acknowledge. Um, you've got you've got the aspect of acknowledging whether we can rather than do that because that will create a larger social impact. Maybe we can just impose a significant excess should any losses arise. Yes maybe a first loss retention, which means that basically we'll agree or that tenant when they come in, they can put up a bond, 
which basically goes to securing the first limit of a large loss, yes. which means the insurer only picks up limits above, let's say it was 100 grand, they would have to have a loss that's greater than 100 grand to trigger the policy. That gives the insurer some protection. Mm -hmm. um, we've got to consider the premium pool and the additional levies that can be collected for the other aspects of risk that, that arise. So the value of advice in, in the, the redevelopment of bylaws as a result of these changes and community changes is, is really critical. Yeah, absolutely. So if I was to introduce you to a, a building or a strata manager, what, were the, what sort of audit do you do and how long does an audit take to uh, you know, provide a quote, for example? To carry out. Yeah. Um, so, got three minutes. Um, the, the process I would generally go through is taking a look at not, not what, what the insurances consist of or the values consist of. I would be taking a look at what risks are emerging from a property. Sure. And I would go straight to the heart of, of the risks. So for the cafes, I'd be, I'd be asking them what risk management measures we've got in place. For cafes, it's how frequently is a ducting uh, and the deep frying ducts cleaned. Um, what's the housekeeping like in these in these tenancies? So I'd really want to eliminate the fire risks because they're the easiest ones to eliminate. Yeah. I'd want to take a look at um, what the market is telling me. So I'd, I'd probably do a review of hist historical premiums and take a look at what's impacting these premiums going up and down. Yeah. And I and I'd I'd manage the risk element and not the insurance. And I'd take a look at what measures, if the insurance is a given, um, how can I make this insurance at risk more attractive to the market? What that sort of things can I offer? How can I reshape this policy so that it can be more attractive? Yes. Um, I'd look at maybe getting indemnities from certain tenancies, but I'd definitely be going to the heart, which is the bylaws, mm -hmm. because that would probably take the longest and would have the greatest impact long-term for the owners. And the aim is, is not to try and get a cheap premium in one year, it's to create it's to create future renewability, which provides future security to the property over a long-term basis with premium stability, hopefully with premiums increasing because risks are reducing on a regular basis. I see. I see. It's not letting the market dictate to you what position you want to be in. It's being proactive. I'd be working with the building managers. I'd be taking a look at what things they can do to help me with the management of the building to, in order to prevent risk. Um, I'd be taking a look at information packs. I'd be being at I'd, I'd be at um, meetings where with the owners corp to try to get some support behind this, um, and I'd be trying to do it for all because you know the, the the person that owns a brothel doesn't want to be the worst person in the room. No, they don't want to be hated. No, right? business, etc. So I get it. So we've got to we've got to manage all those things. Um, so working working with a strata manager is pretty. Pretty instrumental okay. in that place. Okay. Um, but yeah, that's a great that's a great building. Oh, deep dive into that one. <laughs> I'd love to take the conversation further offline, but oh, um, gonna go. time permitting. It's been um, great, man. But no, thank you so much for. Uh, honestly, I've learned a lot today, so it's been really cool to to get inside your head a little bit and, and learn about the insurance industry a lot yeah. more. Yeah, thank you, and to learn what role you you play, which is really instrumental. Mm. Um, yeah, thanks, man. I um, so Daniel from Elevate Property. How can people find about find out about you and, and ask you for advice about certain things around? Property yeah, ownership? sure, great. So um, we've got a really good online presence. Uh -huh. uh, so obviously the website or the W's elevatepg.com.au, mm -hmm. uh, but also I intimated where our office is based, and now I will disclose it. <laughs> uh, it's at two fifty Pitt Street in the middle of the city. So. Okay. 
right next to the ANZ building and right where the new city metro is being built downstairs. So uh, easy to get to the town hall, but in a few years, metro station will be there as well to, to jump on board as well. And how do people find you on social media? Yeah, we're all on over Facebook and Instagram. We love putting up pretty pictures with some quirky comments. Yeah. Um, so Elevate uh, Property Group, just enter in the Google search function. Uh, you'll be able to see either our Facebook or Instagram stuff on there. Amazing, man. Most mm-hmm. trustworthy property manager in, in town. Oh, mate, right back at you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Daniel. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. It. Cheers.